Hello and welcome to the Armenian News Network, Grung. I'm Asped Bedrosian. This Conversations on Grung episode is our first live show on Clubhouse, and hopefully it will be an informative as well as enjoyable discussion for all. Hovik Mancharyan and I will be talking about the politics of opening the paths and communications, lifting blockades, and rumors, facts, fallacies around so-called corridors through each other's countries. This live event is being recorded on Tuesday, June 14th, 2021. All right. As part of the November 9th agreement, Armenia and Azerbaijan agreed to a number of points, one of which was the unblocking of all transportation routes in the region and opening unfettered access between Azerbaijan and Akhichevan. All economic and transport connections in the region shall be unblocked. The Republic of Armenia shall guarantee the security of transport connections between the western regions of the Republic of Azerbaijan and the Nakhchivan Autonomous Republic in order to arrange unobstructed movement of persons, vehicles, and cargo in both directions. The Border Guard Security Service of the Russian Federal Security Service shall be responsible for overseeing the transport connections. Note that the agreement does not provide for a physical corridor, but rather unfettered access to be overseen by the FSB. This point in the agreement has led to much contention and consternation. While Azerbaijan and Turkey have pledged full opening of borders, Armenia has refused so far to provide the said transportation link. To talk about these issues, we are joined by Dr. Arek Danagulian, who is an Associate Professor of Nuclear Science and Engineering at MIT. He's currently working on new monochromatic methodologies for cargo screening, as well as technologies for nuclear arms control treaty verification via resonant phenomena and physical cryptography. And Emil Sanamian, a senior research fellow at USC's Institute of Armenian Studies, specializing in the politics of the Caucasus. All right, perhaps before discussing this contentious issue, it might be useful to look at the history of the closed borders. I'm not going to read the whole article which we've written about this, but I'm going to pass it on to Arek Danagulian to start start us off basically to talk about the history of the negotiations. Arek? All right, hello everyone. Uh, Thank you for having me here. so I'll talk a little bit about the history uh, in very general terms about the just generally what happened starting from the 80s with the transportation links between Armenia, Azerbaijan, Turkey, Russia, etc. Um, I think when the Karabakh movement started in 1988, if uh, people who are from Armenia remember fairly early on in 1989 and 1990, the um, connections to Russia from Armenia that were going through Azerbaijan were blocked and um, um, after some time, also the rail link was, was, was blocked. And similarly, the Armenians on their side blocked the uh, connection between Nakhichevan, which is an exclave of, of Azerbaijan, to Azerbaijan itself. Um, uh, then the, when the war started, uh, so the war started in essentially um, in early 90s, Soviet Union, when I say war started, I mean the militarized conflict, the militarization of an otherwise uh, political conflict. Uh, started in about 1990-1991. When Soviet Union collapsed, uh, different countries, neighboring countries, started making diplomatic connections with each other. And in the early days, even though Turkey didn't uh, establish diplomatic relations with Armenia, the border between Armenia and Turkey was open. And there was trade uh, going on, and there were imports of different things uh, back and forth, as well as exports to, to Turkey. 
Uh, and that continued until, if I believe, 1993, when the Armenian side uh, occupied the uh, Kelbajar or Karvajar, as uh, we later started calling it, the region that is essentially is right between Armenia and Karabakh. The region was taken in the spring of 1993 due to its strategic value for increase. It allowed to increase the communication with Karabakh from just a Lachin corridor to a much broader territory and just in general made defense of Karabakh a lot uh, safer. And Turks um, uh, retaliated by blocking the border, closing the border with Armenia and essentially uh, requiring Armenians to withdraw from there uh, in, in order to open the border. Um, and pretty much from then that day on, you know, the war went on for another year. The borders essentially remained closed for a very, very long time. It's very clear that Armenians for Armenian side, I mean, Armenian government and also Armenian public to a great extent, always found this very problematic and always uh, uh, tried to convince or negotiated with the Azeris and the, and the Turkey to open the borders with both countries for quite obvious obvious reasons, right? Um, so there were some, uh, recently there was an interview by Alexander Arzumanyan, who was the foreign minister of Armenia in the 90s, who claimed that in the 90s, uh, the Tansu Chilers government, uh, Turkey's uh, one of the prime ministers uh, even offered Armenians that if they could simply withdraw from some limited uh, areas like near Jebrail or something like that, then Turkey would use that essentially as an excuse to open the border with, with, with Armenia because they, uh, Turkey side said that they cannot do it because it would look like they have abandoned the Azeris. Um, uh, later on, when Levon Petrosian resigned in 1998, uh, famously in his speech, one of the things that he sort of laid out, the big problems that Armenia was facing, was a closed border with Turkey, which essentially extended Armenian transportation ex export uh, routes to the West, but, and thus made Armenian exports more expensive and as such harmed the Armenian economic uh, productivity and economic output. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, but further on, when the, during the Key West Agreement, which failed because Heydar Aliyev reneged, this is like uh, early 2000s, Robert Kochanian, he essentially, as part of the agreement, which was fairly broad and very favorable to Armenian side agreement, uh, he, as part of that, he agreed to open a connection between Azerbaijan and Nakhichevan through Mehri. Something that became a uh, cause for much speculations and much um, I don't know what, what to say, accusations, mostly like myths about him giving up Mehri, which was really never the case. There's plenty of evidence to the, to the contrary. Um, uh, finally, in the 2000s, there was, again, more diplomacy with the Turks. There was a famous soccer diplomacy where the Armenian and Turkish side came pretty close to opening the border. It never happened, okay? Uh, you know, and, and, but it's very, the reason I'm telling this story is because it's very clear that Armenians Armenian side always wanted to open not only the border with Turkey, but actually also with Azerbaijan. There were a number of times that Armenians tried to negotiate opening a border with Azerbaijan. The reason being is because open border with Azerbaijan would mean, again, better transportation to Russia, less reliance on Georgia, okay? And uh, as such would ultimately benefit the, the Armenian economy and also strategically would be very valuable to Armenia because of reduced reliance on Georgia as the sole path towards the West and to, towards, uh, towards Russia. Okay. So uh, what, is, what is interesting is that since November 9th, things have flipped almost completely, right? Now it looks like the Azeris and the Turks want to open the border, but the Armenian side is completely refusing to do that. Of course, the situation is very different. We had a war that we have lost. So the context has shifted 
quite a bit. But uh, the, I guess the reason why we're having this conversation is because this important topic, which has been extremely important for in Armenian foreign policy, for Armenian economy, Armenian strategic stability, has essentially been overlooked over the last six months, and uh, there has really not been much of a discussion. So. Emil, would you like to add anything to that? Uh, yes. Uh, hi, everybody. Sure. Uh, hope my voice is coming through clear. Um, in, in general, it is a bit ironic to uh, discuss the subject matter um, of, uh, sort of interstate connections or uh, unlocking uh, some kind of transportation uh, corridors, considering that as a result of uh, the events of uh, a little over six months ago, Armenia actually uh, lost control over its main internal roads uh, connecting, uh, specifically connecting Yerevan to uh, the fourth and the fifth largest towns in Armenia, which are Stepanakert and Kapan. Uh, in, uh, in uh, re respectively in Artsakh and in the, in Sunik. Uh, currently, those roads are controlled by Russian forces, and uh, Armenia does not have uh, freedom of movement uh, on those main highways that it used to have. Uh, there is also uh, pressure to uh, relinquish control uh, over uh, the main highway to Georgia. Uh, the road that I mentioned to Stepanakert and to Kapan is also the main highway to Iran. Um, uh, that said, uh, I will have to go back uh, uh, comment uh, on the history of uh, the Armenia-Turkey border a little bit uh, separately. Uh, what Arik uh, laid out uh, is a fairly accurate picture of what happened, except with uh, one uh, issue of what Armenia-Turkey border was like before 1993. Uh, there is a sense, uh, sort of a retrospective kind of a look, a uh, sense that things have uh, been kind of an unnatural state in terms of Armenia-Turkey border being closed. As a matter of fact, uh, over uh, the history of Armenia-Turkey border or, or Turkey-Russia border, you know, prior to Armenia being independent or uh, Turkey-Soviet Union border, that border was largely closed, most mostly closed. I mean, there was some limited trade happening. Uh, there were limited uh, rail links uh, occasionally would be uh, used between the Soviet Union and Turkish Republic. However, that was not uh, a regular sort of uh, transportation links, uh, even in the Soviet period. That uh, border was basically the Iron Curtain, wasn't it? It was, you know, even the Iron Curtain was much uh, more open. I mean, you could travel between different parts of Berlin and you could travel between Eastern Europe and Western Europe. Uh, this border, uh, it was not just because of the politics of it, uh, but primarily because of the geography of it. Uh, it was not a well-traveled border. Uh, it's an isolated area, for isolated part of the Soviet Union, isolated part of Turkey, where there's not much economic activity was happening at the time and, uh, uh, you know, historically. Uh, so there was not much need uh, to, uh, to move, uh, you know, people or, or goods in the Soviet period. Uh, there, there were just a few episodes uh, that I'm aware of, uh, uh, you know, people crossing uh, the, the Soviet-Turkish border by train. Uh, like I remember the story uh, told by Jari Libaridian, who traveled that border in the 70s. Uh, but this was not a regular type of, uh, uh, you know, exchange that was sort of norm normal, would have been, you know, from sort of travel from Yerevan to Kars or Yerevan to, I don't know, uh, uh, some other uh, town in, in Turkey. That was not happening in the Soviet period. Of course, there was uh, freedom of uh, no freedom of uh, travel in, in the Soviet Union. That was another issue. But there was no there was no an, an open there was no open border in the Soviet period. In the period between uh, 1990 1993, sort of prior to sort of final closure of the border, the border remained closed except 
uh, for uh, the brief period in the winter of 1992-1993, while uh, Armenia was suffering the energy energy uh, crisis, uh, which was a combination of you know the shutting down of the, the uh, nuclear power plant. Uh, the Azerbaijani uh, uh, diversion groups uh, blowing up the main uh, pipeline, gas pipeline, going through Georgia, having previously closed uh, the gas pipeline going through Azerbaijan. Armenia was completely cut off uh, from both gas and uh, nuclear uh, energy. Uh, and, uh, you know, there was uh, a blackout uh, over the winter, that especially harsh winter of 1992-1993. And the U.S. government was able to pressure Turkish government to agree to allow some of the, uh, oh, um, and uh, there was also the conflict going on in Georgia itself. There was, uh, you know, a, a conflict in, in, uh, in South Ossetia and starting in August 1992 in Abkhazia, uh, which closed that railroad that connected uh, Armenia to Russia via Abkhazia. So that precipitated additional problems for Armenia. Um, the U.S. government was able to pressure the Turkish government to briefly open the rail link to be able to for for the for the u.s grain and and kerosene to be able to go from the trabzon port uh, through uh, uh, the turkish territory into armenia because georgia was uh, closed due to uh, fighting uh, turkish government agreed to that uh, but like Arek mentioned after the uh, capture of kelbajar they closed that uh, transit it was not an open border between armenia and turkey it was turkey permitting temporary transit for U.S. assistance to come through Turkey into Armenia. That said, there was uh, definitely trade happening, and to this day, and there's always been trade happening between Armenia and Turkey, especially in that period, uh, Turkey became one of the major uh, sources of uh, sort of cheap goods, consumer goods for the entirety of the Soviet Union. So you had people from all over the Soviet cities, not just Yerevan, Tbilisi, but much further afield in Russia and Ukraine and everywhere else, sort of flock to Istanbul to purchase, uh, you know, consumer goods to bring them and sell them in various markets and throughout the Soviet Union. And, uh, you know, there would be Turkish goods or there would be goods from other countries sort of uh, transported via Istanbul. But that was happening via, air, you know, air traffic. You know, Armenians would go from Yerevan to, I don't know, Sochi or to Moscow or to Tbilisi take uh, take a flight to Istanbul, you know, uh, get a bunch of goods, bring it back and sell it in Yerevan. And it was a major uh, source of uh, economic activity for the, again, the entirety of the ex-Soviet Union. If we look at a uh, number of people that were engaged in that kind of trade, it was called the shuttle trade, you know, they would, uh, you know, bring uh, uh, goods in this huge uh, shuttle, they would call them uh, Chelnochny, in Russian Chelnochny, uh, uh, those big big bags of, of goods they would bring bring to sell. If you look at how many people were engaged in that trade, I would I would probably venture to say it was many more Armenians were engaged in that trade than say in in the fight for Karabakh or in any other you know sort of <laughs> nationalist undertaking like that. So um, that uh, importance of Turkey, economic importance for Turkey, always existed. However, uh, in addition to the political. Uh, aspect uh, that uh, Arik mentioned, uh, there was always uh, an issue of uh, uh, subpar in a trade infrastructure that existed there. The reason there is a rail link between Armenia and Turkey is because uh, you know Russian Russian Empire used to include uh, the entirety of Armenian Republic today and also Kars. Uh, so as the Russian Empire expanded into the Caucasus, they brought brought the rail link 
uh, first down to Baku and then to Tbilisi and then down to Yerevan and then also uh, actually first to Kars and then to Yerevan. Uh, that infrastructure sort of survived the civil war. Kars, of course, became, became part of the Republic of Turkey, but the rail link, you know, uh, remained there. Uh, and then much later, uh, Turkish government connected Kars to uh, the interior of Turkey. So that's how that rail line uh, came to be. There was never an effort to build a rail line to connect an Armenia and Turkey, right? It's just an accident of history that exists. And it never uh, had that sort of economic... Um, uh, um, uh, uh, economic uh, underpinning that would just involve Armenia and Turkey. It was always a, a rail link uh, that either involved uh, Russia, center of Russia and the periphery of Russia, or the center of Turkey and the periphery of Turkey. So when you have the sort of two peripheries of Eastern Turkey and Armenia come together, there is, of course, you know, a local interest uh, in terms of you know having some kind of trade, I remember going to Turkey in 2010 and meeting with the former mayor of Kars, who was a proponent uh, of uh, opening the border opening. with Armenia. But uh, the main cause for uh, that kind of uh, activism on his on his part had to do with uh, the fact that he was representing the Kurdish-friendly uh, pro-Kurdish party. You know, current th that period iteration, sort of the the, the precursor to HDP the current uh, pro-Kurdish party, and uh, his main local opponents were sort of the local Azerbaijanis who were very much uh, opposed to that and sort of supporting the nationalists in Turkey. And, uh, you know, there, it was much as much a political discourse within Turkey as it was an economic discourse. So, yes, going back to this uh, whole notion, yes, of course, Armenia always wanted to have open border with all of the countries around it. It's a small country that uh, doesn't have many uh, resources and doesn't have uh, uh, that many options for trade and uh, the more would have uh, would be beneficial for Armenia. However, uh, the, the notion that there was normal trade at any point historically uh, is, is a flawed one. There was never an open border uh, environment around Armenia and it, when there was, Armenia was not a, a separate entity, it was part uh, of, a, of another larger entity. So, Emil, um, Ilham Aliyev has been calling the open communications agreement point corridors. Uh, I think this is probably for domestic consumption to look very victorious and uh, uh, capable and everything. But of course, this has caused Armenians a lot of consternation, right? Is there a, an issue of sovereignty? What does communication mean? What does corridor mean? So as a question, does East-West communication for this communication between Azerbaijan and uh, Nakhichevan going through Sunik prevent North-South communication? Does it block Armenia from Iran? Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, not necessarily, of course. I mean, you can imagine all kinds of scenarios uh, where, you know, there is open, um, open traffic. Uh, the question is about sovereignty at this point having relinquished control over Artsakh, which was uh, the most important uh, sign and important element and important instrument of sovereignty that Armenia had. Think about it. For uh, what uh, 30 years, uh, in defiance uh, to, of Russian position, defiance of U.S. position, defiance of uh, U.N. position, 
uh, Armenia uh, maintained control over Artsakh and uh, continued to develop as a country. So that's, that's, that's where the sovereignty comes from. It doesn't come from the fact that you have a seat at uh, the United Nations. Sovereignty comes from independent action. Uh, it's like electricity, right? I mean, you have to do something uh, to be able right. to develop that kind of sovereignty. So having relinquished that sovereignty, uh, the question today is whether Armenia has sovereignty over its own territory. And like I already mentioned, it does not have sovereignty over the main highway connecting uh, it's our Republic of Armenia and Iran. That's the mm -hmm. fact today. Independent of whether uh, there is a corridor, additional corridor, additional territory, ceded, additional the current situation uh, means that Armenia has already relinquished control over uh, Armenia-Iran highway. Uh, Russia uh, plays a role, and actually, you know, the, Armenia's position is that that territory is uh, Azerbaijani territory. It's not its territory. Uh, um, uh, around Kapan, I mean, in that area. So, um, going back to the corridor issue, uh, as Arek mentioned, uh, back in uh, uh, during the negotiations between Heydar Aliyev and uh, Robert Kocherian, uh, Heydar Aliyev uh, was ready to agree to Karabakh. Uh, within its Soviet autonomy borders, plus the Lachin Corridor, becoming part of Armenia. But he wanted something uh, additional in addition to the, uh, the six districts that he would, he would be getting. That's right. Part of that deal. He wanted a, another, a piece of Armenia attached to Azerbaijan, and he wanted Mehri to be part of Azerbaijan, that corridor. Of course, Kocheren could not agree to that because that would, uh, you know, create, a, you know, obviously created a, a problem for him domestically. Mm -hmm. uh, so this notion of sovereign corridor was discussed where, uh, you know, it could be, they were actually thinking of uh, having a bridge built or a tunnel built that would go through Mehri or around Mehri or some way that would not uh, be visible or would not be a sort of crisscrossing with, uh, with the local roads. And uh, Let me ask the question to Arek. Um, given the conversations that are happening today, Ari, does the Azerbaijan-Nakhichevan connection pose a threat to Armenia today? So I, I just want to go back a little bit in, in time and uh, sort of again touch upon what was agreed, what, what, what were the different conversations in the 90s and in Key West uh, between, at the time, between Armenians and Heydar Aliyev. Um, so, so, so first of all, this whole conversation is about giving up Mehri. It's, it's not entirely out of thin air. Um, there was a global plan that was proposed in the 90s, and there was even conversation between uh, Suleiman Demirel and uh, his American counterparts about possibly swap, doing swaps, territorial swaps, Mehri to Azerbaijan. And You're referring to the Paul Global Plan. That's right, yeah. And, uh, and it looks like when... So, so what happened at Key West? The Key West, if you, most of my sources, I have to say, is based on the reading of The Black Garden by Tom Deval, where he says that essentially, yeah, the Armenians agreed to... Um, basically an obstructed access between Azerbaijan and Nakhichevan. And there was all kinds of discussions about how that would happen. Theoretically, it could have been just a road, or Azeris would be allowed to use a road. There would be guarantees that they would not be harmed along the way. Uh, there was a proposal to build an overpass all the way from Azerbaijan to Nakhichevan, etc., in order to minimize any kind of you know, interaction between local Armenians and Azeri traffic, uh, whatnot. Um, but basically, the main argument uh, was that it would be eight meters of Armenian, uh, basically eight meters of Armenian territory, 24 by 24 kilometers. If you do the math, that's about 20 hectares. I have friends in New Mexico whose backyards are larger than that. 
you know, um, it, it's kind of a moot point because it never came to pass. Key West was abandoned, essentially. But uh, many of the opponents of uh, Robert Kocharian sort of uh, capitalized on that and, and sort of, in some cases, intentionally misinterpreted it like he's giving up Mehri. Right. And this debate, this point, this narrative sort of became like a sticking point and became sort of like a stick with which people bashed on Kocharian, including some members of the Levanter Petrusian administration. Some, I've heard some senior members of the administration sort of say that, yeah, Kocharian agreed to give up Mehri. Well, it's like factually not true. Okay. <laughs> he didn't give up Mehri or didn't agree to giving up Mehri. It would have been a disaster for everyone. No, I mean, not only our, for Armenia would be disaster, but Iran would not allow something like that. Now, right? you because can correct me if I'm wrong, Arek or mm -hmm. Emil. I think what I remember was that um, in the Key West agreements, the discussion went where Kocharian said, basically, he wants to keep Artsakh. What do you want for it? And then the response was he wanted Mehri. Aliyev wanted Mehri. Yeah, but but the question is that what what was written down in Key West essentially was just an unfettered access to Nakhichevan, which eventually at, on, in Key West, Aliyev essentially agreed to, and then later he just the whole agreement was thrown out of the window when he came back to 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 to, to Baku. Now, okay, that, that's that's history. The question and and that's the background of what right. that turned into. Question is, okay, what what if such an connection is allowed between Azerbaijan and Nakhichevan. What does it mean for Azerbaijan? And what does it mean for Armenia? Let's talk specifically not about the sovereign corridor, but let's talk about specifically what is written in article number nine, which again talks about unobstructed transportation link, right? Let, let's just, let's try to address specific points at the time, then we can talk about what others really want to do. Maybe yes, they yes, want to get yes, corridor. Let's do that. Yeah. So in, in that context, okay, let's see what, what do Azeris gain by having an unfettered access to Nakhichevan. So there may be this temptation to think of like that Nakhichevan is essentially blockaded, etc. Well, it's definitely currently blockaded by Armenia, but uh, Nakhichevan is not blockaded from the rest of the world, right? So right now, if you go on Google Maps, you can see that from Julfa in Nakhichevan to get to Horadiz, Azerbaijan, it's a six-hour drive through Iranian territory. Like there, there's a real active access. If you are in Nakhichevan and we are talking about this from point of view of Nakhichevan itself, right? Nakhichevan, the primary thing that is important for any business or any kind of anyone who's doing anything in Nakhichevan is connection to large markets, okay, where they can sell their products. That primarily means Tavriz, which is a three-hour drive from Nakhichevan to Van in Turkey, which is a four-hour drive, and then another five-hour drive to Kars, right? And then from Kars, there's a fast rail connecting to Ganja, or you know what we call Ganzak, and to Baku, right? So Nakhichevan is very well connected in general to most economic hubs in the region, right? And it, to me, it's not entirely clear, purely economically, what this connection would provide to Nakhichevan itself, right? What I suspect, and I realize that I'm speculating here, right, uh, that I suspect that some of this connection is probably if it benefits economically. I'm talking about economics. Mostly what it will benefit is not so much Nakhichevan, the connection to Bamdao, Zangelan, and Jebrel, but actually it will help Zangelan and this new territories that Azeris have taken back, Azeris are trying to repopulate those territories. And to repopulate, they have to create incentives for people to move there. It's a very hostile environment because it's littered with landmines and it's right next to, you know, essentially still a war zone, right? So at the very least, if you, someone is moving to Zangelan, they need to be able to, for transportation to near, nearby 
points of economic activity, which Nakhachevan is. I suspect, and again, this is a speculation, that this is actually going to benefit Zangelan and Jebrail and Fizuli and Kubatli more than it will benefit uh, Nakhachevan. So this is purely economics. Now, if we think about more in terms of um, more in terms of like military strategic, strategic point of view, look, it's obviously an additional road cannot hurt, right? It's always an additional road, even if it's just a unfettered access and not a sovereign uh, kind of connection, is always going to be beneficial. But uh, from a military point of view, in terms of uh, transporting, let's say, military hardware to Nakhichevan from Azerbaijan, I mean, it's going to be, at least the way it's written in Article Number 9 from November 9th Agreement, is going to be under surveillance of FSB, right? And Armenians, right? Armenians also going to see everything that goes through there. So secrecy, okay, is going to be essentially impossible as far as weapons transfers are concerned. You know, Armenians and Russians will be able to essentially keep count of tonnage, of type of trucks, their license plates, everything that Azeris take to Nakhichevan. From well, military... Eric, I'm actually going to ask you uh, and uh, mm -hmm. Emil about that, but go ahead and finish the point. Yeah. So, so uh, obviously, there's still, I mean, the uh, transport, the military transports, even under surveillance, is better than no military transports at all. Okay. I suspect that, quite honestly, transportation through Iranian territory is probably more secure for the Azeris because it's more reliable. Okay. Uh, that said, uh, some kind of independence from Iran in terms of transit is probably going to be beneficial to Azerbaijan at the time of crisis. In case if there's a war between, if there's another war between Armenia and Azerbaijan, it's obvious that that road is going to be shut down within 30 seconds of the first shot fired, right? Mm -hmm. So in times of a military crisis, any kind of uh, transportation is going to come to a stop. So I, I, in my view, okay, this transportation link has some residual value for Azerbaijan in terms of circumventing and bypassing Iran. But I think it's, uh, its value to, um, uh, to, to, to Azerbaijan, is, is, I, I think it's, it's, it's quite limited. So as such, I don't think it's as big of a threat as it may seem you know, people tend to like draw maps, connecting lines with each other, and it looks very scary. Armenia, sort of, essentially from okay. the south, being cut off from from Iran, but also it does not intercept any Armenian transportation between, say, Ar Armenia to um, to to Iran. Notwithstanding right. the kind of things that Emil essentially listed, that the fact that now Armenian communications have to go through essentially Azeri territory. But Emil, can you talk a little bit about what un, um, uh, unfettered or un uh, what was the word uh, that they were using in the document? Unobstructed. Unobstructed really mean. Does this mean that Azeris can move uh, drugs or weaponry or armaments, illegal nuclear uh, um, waste and stuff like that, <laughs> and the Armenians have absolutely no way of checking they're this? Gonna, they're going to move. They're going to move the Syrian terrorists back and forth just to annoy Armenians. Well, <laughs> listen. Um, so uh, I, I, this is how I view this. Um, uh, we have to uh, look at the history of the Karabakh conflict. This is still Karabakh conflict. Let's not forget that. And uh, absolutely, uh, the uh, the position, uh, evolving position of uh, Azerbaijani government reflected reality on the ground. So at the time uh, when, uh, say, uh, uh, first the Soviet army and uh, Azerbaijani Interior Ministry basically controlled Karabakh or most of Karabakh. Uh, you know, the position was that, uh, you know, we're not giving you any status and uh, our st status uh, for uh, uh, Armenians in Azerbaijan, which they consider Karabakh to be, uh, will mirror whatever status Azerbaijanis in Armenia will have 
uh, you know, even though if there is no Azerbaijanis left in Armenia, then that means there will be no Armenians left in Azerbaijan. Okay, so uh, this is this has been the position of Azerbaijani government uh, in uh, in the late Soviet period, in uh, 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 since the basically Sumgait, uh, you know, the exchange of population, the last Azerbaijani village uh, in Armenia was actually, as a matter of fact. Uh, Nuvade, uh, which was uh, on the road uh, between Mehri and Zangilan. Yeah, so, <laughs> if you think about it, up until August 1992, uh, Azerbaijanis, or really Soviet army and uh, Soviet Burgard, together with Azerbaijani police, control about half of uh, Mehri corridor. If you think of that, uh, that uh, Mehri border with Iran, about half of it was controlled by Azerbaijan up until August 1991. And then uh, after an Armenian attack, that uh, village was evacuated uh, in August 1991, just as uh, Azerbaijanis were pushing Armenians out of Shaomian and the other areas in the north of uh, Karabakh. So uh, as long as Azerbaijan had this position of dominance, uh, and it continued into 1992 uh, and in 1993, their position was that any allowance for Armenian presence in Karabakh will be connected to uh, an allowance for Azerbaijani presence in Armenia. Uh, that was what they laid out when, say, for example, uh, Terpetrasyan sent uh, uh, or allow, uh, agreed to uh, have uh, Ashoblian go to Baku and sort of beg for peace in, in the fall of uh, 1992. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's really Balayan is a Yazidi, right? He's Armenian, no. as far as I know. I don't know what his ancestry are. He's, uh, mm. you know, well regarded uh, as a, as a school director, uh, director of Hitar Seba Stasi School in, in Yerevan. Okay. Uh, he's an Armenian intellectual uh, who, uh, um, you know, sort of originally, uh, you could say, the first uh, kind of uh, intellectual, uh, uh, what would be the word, uh, 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 not, I don't want to call him father, but definitely an influencer of Nik on Nikol Pashinyan's uh, uh, ideas. Yes, as as a as a person, as a student, um, uh, and a mentor. Fact, yeah, could, you could maybe could call him a mentor. Uh, he was uh, um, Nikol Pashinyan was uh, campaign director for Ashot Balian's presidential campaign in 1998. That was first uh, foray by. Uh, Nikol Pashinyan into Armenian politics beyond uh, sort of uh, his uh, ar writing articles for as a student uh, journalism. So Ashut <clears throat> uh, Blian came and they, they told him, okay, well we're gonna uh, agree to uh, f for this if you you know if you uh, agree to the fact that there is an Azerbaijani going to be an Azerbaijani presence uh, in Armenia. So that was the position. Uh, of course, after the defeat uh, of Azerbaijan between 1993 and 1994, uh, that position has been pushed to the, to the background because the priority has become uh, regaining uh, the districts around Karabakh. And, uh, you know, now that that's been accomplished, the priority is to regain the rest of Karabakh. And if that is encumbered somehow, and it is encumbered by November 10 agreement that allows for Russian peacekeeping forces, Azerbaijan is demanding sort of, if not complete mirror, which is impossible, of course, there's not an Azerbaijani minority left in, in, in Armenia, but some form of Arme Azerbaijani sovereignty on the Republic of Armenia territory. Okay, so this is discussion of this corridor or whatever. That's, that's how I perceive it, and I think that's mm -hmm. how they perceive it, is that having allowed for 
Russian peacekeeping presence and sort of Armenians, you know, being able to wake up in the morning, walk around Stepanakert and go back home. Uh, they want something in return for that uh, in terms of uh, rights uh, in the Republic of Armenia. And, uh, you know, the, if that's connected in their mind and if Armenia is re refusing, then they will, you know, uh, make sure that there is no Armenian presence left in Karabakh, basically. So uh, uh, that's that's how I look at it. And, and going back to this whole discussion of the political uh, aspect of this that Arek touched on, uh, position by uh, Leon Tereptrasyan was that we wouldn't be able to get Azerbaijan to agree to Karabakh, uh, Karabakh's independence or reunification with Armenia. Uh, so we have to agree to an autonomous status by Karabakh within Azerbaijan. That was the position originally in 1990, pretty much since the time he became leader of Armenia. Um, and that position remained his position, even though Armenia won the war uh, in 1993 and 1994. Uh, and uh, when time sort of came and Kocharyan came to an agreement where Haydar Aliyev was ready to uh, agree to Karabakh becoming part of Armenia. That just did not uh, did not rhyme with uh, the thesis that Terpetresian uh, proposed, and uh, of course uh, the concession that would have been on a sovereign corridor was sort of magnified in the, in the domestic Armenian political discourse as a surrender of Mehri uh, rather than uh, you know. <laughs> so would you say we stopped ourselves on that point? What's that? Did you would you say that we stopped ourselves on that point? I mean, no. The, 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 there's the domestic Armenian domestic political discourse, right. which uh, substantially is divorced from um, you know what's happening on the ground. The, the reality is Haider Aliyev in the end uh, decided not to agree to the compromise because, uh, as we know from uh, what he said later and uh, what uh, Robert Kocharyan said in his book, uh, is that because his son Ilham Aliyev was against it. And, uh, you know, he was ready to hand power over to him. And Ilham Aliyev didn't want, uh, he saw that surrender, potential surrender, as weakening their position, political position in Azerbaijan. Uh, so that was the key issue. Uh, there, it was up to them to agree to this deal, and they refused to agree to it. Emil, by, um, by, by deal, I mean, uh, you know, making the autonomous, uh, Karabakh with an autonomous borders and Lechen Corridor part of Armenia in exchange for the Sovereign Corridor and the six districts mm -hmm. around Karabakh. I want to quickly get your impression on what is Russia's position on all this, on opening communications, and what do they stand to gain? Uh, well, uh, <clears throat> uh, Russia's position, I mean, I, I, if we look at 99% uh, of Russian political establishment, uh, uh, Beyond uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, there's hardly any interest in any of this. Okay, this is like a periphery of uh, Russian political discourse. Mm -hmm. There's very little interest, very little, uh, you know. Uh, well, I mean, they brokered the agreement, so. Well, the reason they brokered the agreement is because Vladimir Putin uh, got involved and uh, he thinks that there is some kind of responsibility he has towards sort of saving Armenians or. Um, being the moderator in that part of the world. Um, and of course, uh, having been isolated from much of the world uh, in the past number of years, uh, this is one place where, as in the words of uh, uh, the former uh, uh, French foreign minister, um, 
he mentioned that uh, you know Putin can play a, a good guy. Yeah, Bernard Kushner. Yeah, Bernard Kushner. Yeah, uh, that's that's a very important role for Putin. Um, sort of, uh, that's always been a very important role for all of leaders of Russia and the Russian sort of imperialist thinking that they are uh, a civilizer of uh, uncivilized uh, areas of the world, such as the Caucasus and uh, uh, you know Central Asia. Uh, so that is uh, is the goal of Russia. I mean, if you look at the, historically, uh, when Russia started to expand in the Caucasus, I mean, um, you know, the place uh, was not much to be proud of. I mean, it was yeah. uh, pretty much uh, in a stone age still, you know. I mean, uh, uh, the cities were built and uh, the economy was established and, uh, you know, the cognac, Armenian cognac was created thanks to, uh, you know, Russian... Uh, uh, Certainly Russian consumption. Not so much even Russian consumption, but actual Russian uh, business thinking. They, you know, they uh -huh. went and studied the French cognac making, looked at where they could uh, plant the grapes, and they thought the Armenia worked well, so they brought it into Armenia. It could have been Azerbaijan, you know, or it could, be, could have been Georgia. Uh, you know, the, the, what Armenians have, uh, I think, uh, have suffered from is sort of uh, uh, very cursory understanding of Armenian history in terms of uh, the last number of centuries, uh, let's say last three centuries, last four centuries. All right. Um, there is a lot of thinking about, uh, I don't know, uh, the first uh, century AD because there is this map of Armenia, right, uh, that Armenians know, or I don't know, the first Christian state, but the, the continuation of that and understanding of the fact that Armenians were a stateless nation for, you know, close to a millennium um, is not really very well uh, settled and not critically appreciated. Mm -hmm. um, the fact that there is an Armenian state today is a product of Russian uh, foreign pol policy, Russian imperialist policy and uh, Leninist uh, national policy where uh, ethnic minorities or ethnic uh, groups uh, were allowed to have either uh, national republics or even if they never had any statehood before uh, or uh, autonomous republics so that's uh, having uh, come to this present day through this number of uh, sort of uh, russian uh, I don't know, soviet initiatives uh, the notion was that uh, you know this is this is the norm armenia it's a, it's a norm for armenia to be an independent state <laughs> but but that's yeah. that's very far divorced from natural process of how Armenia became an independent state. It was constructed. It was constructed with a lot of investment from outside of Armenia. Um, so uh, going back to, again, uh, Russian, uh, Russian position today is that, uh, you know, on the, on the one hand, there is this sort of cynical uh, sense that uh, the Russians always talk about how Armenians don't appreciate the fact that, you know, um, sort of... Uh, you know the Russians created Armenian state as as we know it today, um, and uh, they wanted to show Armenians, you know, what are they really capable of uh, without Russian support, and okay. this has precipitated this uh, this this current crisis. And uh, however you look at it, um, this is the reality. Uh, you know, Armenians uh, never were able to uh, stand up for themselves when it came to a fight with a large uh, country like Turkey. And of course, Turkey was directly involved in this war. So, right. Um, so um, Russian position today, uh, they would like to keep Turkey out of this region. They don't know how, uh, because Turkey is very much uh, 
you know, enmeshed with uh, Azerbaijan and many, 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 many links. And this has been sort of a uh, production of many, many decades and uh, more than a century of work uh, by, uh, you know, Azerbaijani intellectuals sort of uh, modeling uh, their uh, nationhood, which is, a, of course, a new phenomenon. Well, if they Old want Turkey. to know how, they can ask me. They can certainly keep a very strong Armenia. And that'll help. <laughs> let me let me um, ask a question to Areg here. Uh, Areg, are there financial estimates of the benefits to all the sides to opening all these communication links? So, so let, let me just reflect on what uh, Emilio was saying because I think that that's very important. The history of the Armenian Armenian state. I mean, definitely the foundation of the Armenian state, as we know today, is, is strongly related to the Soviet past in terms of the. Armenian Soviet Socialist Republics, but I think let's let's not. I mean, and Russia has played a huge role in Armenian history. There's no question about that. But Armenian nationalism and the belief in an Armenian nation nation state was essentially was uh, the first concept came about with the, the rise of Armenian nationalism happened in the end of 19th century. And the two par parties that sort of pushed for it were the Dashnaks and the Hanchaks, who were very active in primarily in Ottoman Empire. While Dashnak Party was founded in Tbilisi, Georgia, most of its activities happened in the Ottoman Empire. And in mm -hmm. part, this is what led to the confrontation between Armenian, essentially minority in Ottoman Empire and the, uh, and the Ottoman state itself, which ultimately resulted in Armenian genocide. Uh, let's not forget that the first Armenian state, uh, the Republic, first Republic, was created as a result of Russian abandonment. Okay, after 1917, when the Russians withdrew in essentially in chaos after the revolution, the Armenian state was founded as a consequence and essentially as an inevitability. There were lots of resistance at the time to create a new republic, but the republic was created as a way of trying to defend against the tur Turkish incursion and in combination with Dashnak belief that Armenians need to have their own uh, national uh, national state. Mm -hmm. So I would not, I mean, while again, I would, I, I agree with Emil that uh, Russians have played a big role in Armenian uh, statehood, you know, let's not dismiss it entirely as Armenian state being like a project of the Russians. I mean, Dashnaks were revolutionaries. They were against Tsar, you know, they were in confrontation with the Russian empire in many ways. And Russia punished Armenians heavily in the early 90s by, for example, banning teaching of Armenian languages, uh, language schools and uh, confiscating the Armenian uh, church's property. So, you know, there is degree to which some of these things are true, but to a great degree, Armenians themselves have come up with their own ideas of Armenian uh, state. Now, specifically to the question of what is the economic value, I do not have any numbers. It's a good question. Uh, people have been talking about this for 25 you know, almost 30 years, and yet I don't see any thorough economic analysis uh, performed. That doesn't mean that it has not been done, because I'm not an economist. Uh, I know of the only economic analysis that I know of is the one that Le Montepetusian presented in his address in 1998, where he essentially... He claimed that the Armenian economy would never develop under current conditions because Armenian exports are so expensive, because Turkish border is, is closed. No, uh, but there, there's definitely a kind of understanding that, yes, you do need open borders if you want uh, economic, like a long-term, you know, stable, reliable economic, uh, economic growth. And by the way, the uh, earlier Emil was talking about uh, the Kars mayor and the fact that uh, the Turkish population in, in Eastern Turkey or what we call Western Armenia in Anatolia is, is quite, was, has been quite interested in opening the border, but it's not entirely a matter of uh, Kurdish-Armenian relations. 
which are vastly different from Turkish-Armenian relations, granted. <laughs> it has to do with the fact that that region would benefit significantly if the border were to be opened because they would be able to export to Armenia and there would be trade to Armenia and ultimately would benefit that region. That was the main motivator why the Kurds in Anatolia were quite interested in opening borders. Just even consider Armenian tourism. Right, cars uh, draw significant amount of, uh, um, you know, it's lots of its budget comes from our tourists, Armenian tourists coming and like going and visiting Omni, visiting uh, Mount Ararat. Imagine that instead of having to go to Georgia, they could cross the border directly into cars and, uh, you know, and, and engage in business uh, business uh, over over there. But that said, I, I realize this is very qualitative. This is very general. Uh, I don't know if anyone has that. I know of economists who wanted to do this analysis. But I think that's a good question, yeah. I believe the uh, ARF Dachnachsitzung did a study because uh, even in 2008 when we're, they were doing the soccer diplomacy, uh, the Armenian government had not, or at least they right. accused the Armenian government of not doing a problem. And they found a lot of problems where uh, there, there needed to be some kind of uh, preparation for the Armenian economy in order to do this. And I don't know the specifics, but there was a study, we should pull it up and uh, have... Uh, you know, uh, share it uh, with others. Uh, and um, but other than that, I don't think that there has been anything else. Yeah. Well, look, uh, this actually the whole headline of this uh, talk today reminded me of um, many many talks of that happened inside the Beltway in the early two thousands at the time when the Armenians were being convinced it was a good thing to withdraw forces from uh, around Karabakh in exchange for some kind of economic benefit. And there were a couple of papers prepared at the time by the World Bank. I remember. I think one was uh, um, definitely by the World Bank uh, that uh, you know we were circulating uh, around at the time how uh, you know the costs of uh, economic uh, uh, transportation uh, would uh, be reduced from Armenia. It, that was sort of based on kind of iffy uh, math, I think, because mo most people have never traveled that route between Armenia and Turkey. Uh, one person who has uh, Tatola Kopian in uh, more recent years. Uh, during the, the Armenian-Turkish diplomacy under uh, Serge Sarkisyan and uh, Abdullah Gül, uh, you know, people realize how difficult it is to travel through that historic Armenia, how mountainous it is, you know. Um, and uh, uh, it would still uh, be much, you know, make much more geographic and economic sense for Armenia to continue to trade uh, with Turkey via Georgia than through direct routes, just because of that geography. You know, if you look at the, the physical map of Armenian homeland rather than Tigran Metz map, uh, you realize that that area has never been really contiguous. It's uh, just geographically uh, set up that way. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and... Uh, yeah, uh, and there's been other uh, studies done, uh, and there's a bit of a real, uh, there's been increased realization that uh, there is really not major economic benefit. There is political benefit. You want to have normal relations with Turkey and you want to substantiate that with something. So Armenia was trying to use the leverage that it had that rail, rail connection between uh, Gumri and Kars to sort of let, it, let Turkey use it to go to Azerbaijan, to go to Russia. Uh, uh, something that Armenia could give to Turkey that's useful to Turkey so that Turkey would be less hostile to Armenia. Uh, same with Azerbaijan. Armenia under Kocharyan was, able, was ready to open without... Uh, preconditions was able to was ready to open direct ground communications between Azerbaijan and Nakhchivan uh, through whatever route that went through Armenia, not just Mehri, uh, any route. Uh, but Azerbaijan, of course, refused uh, refused to have any uh, direct connection. So uh, again, coming back, this is a political uh, political uh, issue. Uh, it's not an economic issue. Uh, politically, uh, we need to figure out 
how Armenia can, uh, whether Armenia can, uh, you know, survive there as an independent state, and uh, how that how how is going to be done, uh, you know, say without Russian direct participation so far. Emil, yeah, this is this okay. is actually related to the last question I want to ask to both of you guys. Um, what are the political causes that you see that may or may not be damaged by opening these communication lines? Uh, and, and also the fact that recently there's been a lot of pressure mounting on Armenians to start uh, border demarcation delineation process, you know, which we've said on our podcast seem to be premature because it might affect uh, the Artsakh independence and self-determination. So those are actually two topics that I'm interested in. The, the two causes that may or may not be um, hurt by this process are Artsakh's independence cause and then the genocide recognition if all these communication lines are opened. Um, oh, sorry, but uh, after everything that happened, I don't know what else can hurt uh, Artsakh's cause of independence. I mean, Armenians have clearly demonstrated that this is not a priority issue for them uh, to have control over Artsakh. Uh, well, certainly the current government has indicated that. But not just the current government, I'm sorry, but the uh, vast majority of Armenians and uh, the vast majority of Armenian citizens living in Armenia. Uh, they've demonstrated that, you know, their priorities are somewhere else. It's not about, uh, you know, maintaining control over their country. So that's... Do they feel the same way that's, about that's, that's how it's, That's how it's demonstrated. The, the war is an ultimate test of whether, you know, uh, people want to have control over a certain territory or not. I mean, obviously it was shown that they don't. So, I mean, I'm not saying that it was. it's easy to do. It's not easy. Uh, it's just, you know, that's... That's where the test is. It's not about opening some kind of communications or whatnot. None of that plays any any significant role. Arik? Um, yeah. So so just we're sort of we're discussing lots of things simultaneously. I just want to make one additional comment about the question of what are the benefits of opening the borders with Turkey. I mean, uh, I guess I guess Emil is right in that the transportation infrastructure in eastern Turkey is fairly you know limited. Uh, there has historically not been that much communication. That's true. But if you look at the Armenian-Iranian border in 1991, also it was completely stagnant. There were like very narrow abandoned roads. There was no normal bridge that would be able to support real transportation through Arax River. And yet, because of economic interest, uh, one new bridge was built, new roads were built or widened, and infra uh, transportation infrastructure was set up. So transportation infrastructure followed the economic kind of incentives, right? So uh, I think it's wrong to look at this in a very static way, like, oh, you know, there's like tiny little villages on the other side, like dirt roads on the other side, and same thing here. No, but that will change if there is, in, uh, you know, uh, economic incentive. And clearly there has been economic incentives on both sides. Armenians, as Emil very clearly described, have been actively going to Turkey through the long way to Georgia, okay? The Kurds on, in Anatolia are clearly have been shown interest in opening the border for economic reasons. So, so there is that aspect to it. Now, as far as question of how does this all affect politics, I think that that's a very good question. Look, I'll, I'll say the following, right? I mean, one of the reasons why this problem, problem has been dragging on for such a long time, a big part of it was the deep, deep distrust. Maybe distrust is an understatement. It's more like deep hatred between two sides towards towards each other right and we sort of find out historically that when there is trade people are less interested in killing each other why because why would you want to kill your your customers 
<laughs> right? You, you, if anything, you, are, you become interested in your customer's prosperity so they can buy more stuff. And if you're a customer, you're interested in whoever it is you're trading or buying stuff from in their prosperity so they can provide you with cheap products. So the more economic trade there is, the likelihood of war in general goes down. We see this throughout the whole planet, okay? Not just in the Caucasus, okay? We see this everywhere. And in general, while open borders can, in the short term, and in some specific cases, can hurt, uh, let's say, the economies, the local economies, overall, vast majority of the cases, right, globalization of economy has ultimately benefited, benefited the planet, right, more or less. So I think in order for Armenia, in order for this problem in the long term, and when I say long term, I don't mean next three, five years. I don't mean Nikol and Aliyev type of era. I'm talking about like next 30, 40, 50 years. In order for there to be like some kind of long term peace, people need to start talking to each other. And best way for them to talk to each other is to trade with each other, okay, in an active way. And in the process, learning how not to hate each other and how to tolerate each other's presence across a border or next, next to each other. So I, I think overall, in when when we're looking at the more like grand long term goals, I think communication and really the word is a very communication means both verbal communication and transportation communication. Both are critical for the future of this of this region. I mean, look, uh, one thing that is very clear, right? We're thinking about Armenia's relations with Russia, Armenia's relations with America, Europe. Look, America's, Europe's, Russia's are going to come and go, but Turkey and Azerbaijan are going to stay. And if we want to look at the, if we want to survive in this region for a long way, it cannot be through a military confrontation. Because in case of a long-term military confrontation, okay, Armenia, a country of three million against ninety million Turkey and ten million Azerbaijan, has no chance of winning. I'm sorry, Armenia is not going to become Israel in the short or medium term. Okay. And uh, we might not survive the long term, for that matter. Okay, so we need to think of a long-term relations with Turkey and Azerbaijan under the assumption that Russians sooner or later will abandon us. Okay, if we look at last 100, 120 years, there have been at least two cases where Armenia was fully abandoned by Russia. The first one was after the revolution in 1917, and the second one was after the revolution in 1991. Okay. After the first revolution, it was a disaster for the Armenians. The second revolution, it happened to be that Azeris were in a total chaos. So we ended up winning the war. We sort of lucked out in that Azeris were so, did so badly, so poorly prepared, and were so incompetent that we managed to defeat them. But next time when Russians abandon us, and it's just a matter of time, the way I look at this, okay, Azeris will not have the benefits of chance on our side, or at least we should not be counting on that, okay? So, so we should sort of start thinking about that in the, these terms that I think communicating with your neighbors is absolutely critical for long-term stability and security. We are at one hour right now, and I want to open the floor to raised hands and, um, and see if we have any questions. Hobie, you have a question, I understand. Yeah, I'm going to uh, ask the first question, and I'll let the uh, crowd also you know, then participate. So I, I think that, um, Arag, I, I appreciate your argument but uh, you know comparing Armenia's size you know your argument uh, the same argument works under any scenario because you know uh, there is no way in hell that we will be able to be a big enough trade partner with Turkey to ever sort of even make them think twice about prioritizing trade over geopolitical interests uh, look at uh, Syria look at Iraq 
Look at all around Turkey. Turkey uh, with its Mavi uh, Vatan uh, or blue sort of homeland strategy is in an expansionist mode. So yes, uh, we understand that. But uh, to say that, you know, doing trade with them will uh, somehow dissuade them from, you know, doing other harm to us when, you know, Erdogan today is clearly stating that they're going to continue the policy of their, what their ancestors uh, did, you know, in their early 1900s. I think, you know, uh, we need to take that threat seriously. And 90% of what happens if we, let's say, decide to open borders uh, would be with Turkey. Uh, but also, I want to mention this. Varujan uh, Giramyan, uh, a famous uh, Turkologist in Armenia, has concerns about this agreement in that, uh, you know, it can be a ticking time bomb because, you know, if we sign off on this and if we say that, you know, there is a, uh, you know, we're, we're going to give unfettered access. We didn't talk too much about it because I think we'll be speculating, but uh, could it be uh, that, okay, there's some kind of event and someone closes the road or someone shoots at a car on the road and who has the ability, like, does that mean that war is starting again or does that mean that Azerbaijan and Turkey can, you know, attack and uh, uh, take over? Uh, I didn't talk, talk, we didn't see discussion about this, but, uh, you know, I, I think we need to figure out how to, if we, if we are going to open borders, then we need to be careful not to allow any of that or minimize the possibility of that. Yeah. And lastly, I know we're talking about we're talking about opening communications without talking about all the other things that are happening, and that's for a purpose, like such as the return of our POWs, um, you know, and, and and all the other conditions. But I just want to give I just want to let the uh, the audience know as well that you know yes yes we're talking about this only this issue in isolation uh, but it's worthwhile to know okay well yes we did open the borders but are there other influences in that could affect that so i think look it doesn't really help us to build this kind of you know simplistic views of, of turkey right so one thing about erdogan that we that people are kind of talking about pan-turkism so first of all we need to remember erdogan is not a pan-turkist he's a pan-islamist first and foremost right but more importantly erdogan is not even pan-islamist he's a very pragmatic right yes he's building relations with turkic nations but he's also building relations with ukraine which is not turkic with russia actually which is not turkic russia is building nuclear power plants in mersin province it's building uh, it's involved in libya which is not a turkic state it has like you know supporting palestinians who are not turkic turkey today they had a meeting with joe biden who is not a turk so erdogan first and foremost is a pragmatic politician okay who is who has this view that he needs to increase the influence of turkey throughout the region but even then erdogan is last 20 years and Erdogan's will come and go before erdogan okay the republican the republican movement okay the republican turkey was much more isolationist okay ataturk had this zero problem with neighbors type of a policy and for about 67 years 70 years other than the conflict in north cyprus turkey was fairly isolated country and in the 90s okay turkey essentially avoided getting mostly mostly got, avoided getting involved in any military action in harabagh uh, war so what we need to think about is like it's not when open your open border you don't invite their troops to come into the center of yerevan right uh, opening economic relations does not mean disarming yourself and exposing yourself to a wanton Turkish attack. No, what you can do is that you can have an economic development. At the same time, you can develop your forces. The goal is to increase the value of peace through trade and to increase the cost of war with a better military. Right, so you need to do those things simultaneously. If everyone likes to talk about Israel. Israel has does this remarkably well. Israel, on one hand, has a strong military in case peace fails. At the same time, has been actively 
developing peace with all its hostile neighbors, right? It signed the Camp David in his 70s with Egypt to essentially, like, uh, it, uh, Israel gave Egypt a territory the size of half of Caucasus, the Sinai Peninsula, just so that it has peace with uh, with Egypt, even though there was no guarantee that next year Egypt will flip. So, so Egypt, uh, so Israel has really played. Now, now they are doing this like new diplomacy with uh, different with Saudi Arabia, with many with United Arab Emirates, etc. So, so you need to simultaneously both work towards peace by economic exchanges being probably part of that a component of that at the same time yes having a strong military and developing your military the two things don't contradict each other you know i just want to mention uh, to um everyone listening that the floor is open for raising hands if you uh, have a question uh, don't hesitate to raise uh, your hands please uh since i oh wait a second there's uh, there are some some hands so I just want to remind that this call is recorded. When I uh, give you uh, time to speak, please try to keep it short and uh, announce your name and, and talk, and please keep it respectful. So I'm going to invite uh, Johnny, I believe, was first. Johnny, can you talk? You're on mute. Hey, guys, how are you? Hello. Can we be here? Just a question for Adek. Um, how did the open borders with uh, Batsumi in Georgia turn out for the Georgians? Um, I, so to answer that, I don't live in Batumi. I don't. I'm not there to know that. I do have Georgian friends, and uh, so far, I have not seen the Georgian economy collapse or being invaded by Turkey. Okay, so I think you know. Look, one thing that is important is uh, opening borders does not mean having uh, incompetent economic policy, right? Like one of the things that people talk a lot about is the risk of, for example, uh, uncontrolled, um, let's say, influx of products, okay, which will destroy the local economy and things like that, right? So first of all, there are ways to control that, okay? There are duties that can be imposed. There is anti-dumping measures that can be implemented if the country is trying to, you know, perform dumping about a particular country. We should know that of all because only two days ago, United States introduced anti-dumping penalties against the aluminum factory in Yerevan for undercutting American competitors. So, so these kind of practices exist. Okay, there's many, many tools in the in the economic policy that can be used to control uh, kind of control trade. Uh, again, it's not all for all. So far, I mean, people. I, people can disagree with me. So far, I have not seen any kind of an economic or political crisis in Georgia, you know, brewing up because of close relations with Turkey. Emil, do you have any thoughts about that? Um, well, no doubt, uh, open borders are better than closed borders. Uh, there's always the economic policy to be able to import to. Uh, uh, impose tariffs when necessary. Uh, like I said, issue with Turkey is, is a political issue. Uh, how uh, to find a way, uh, how, find a modus operandi to coexist with Turkey. So we have, for example, uh, the Armenian community in, uh, in Istanbul that found that modus operandi through a combination of international guarantees under uh, the uh, Lausanne Treaty and uh, also locally. I mean, uh, they, uh, you know, uh, basically swear loyalty to the Turkish state, to, first to Ataturk, now they're swearing loyalty to Erdogan. Um, that's how they exist, right? They still have their community infrastructure, churches, hospitals, they do weddings, I don't know, uh, athletic events, etc. When Armenian Olympics were happening in Yerevan, they had one of the biggest uh, athletic uh, representations. So the community still exists. Of course, it's uh, diminishing. Year after year, it's diminishing. 
Uh, but Istanbul remains a huge city and it's an important uh, pool on the Armenian community. That's the important pool rather than say historic Armenian uh, you know, areas that remain isolated and underdeveloped. So um, when, when Armenia finds that MO with, with Turkey, uh, it will be uh, one of two sort of combination uh, sort of spectrum. Either it's going to swear loyalty to, the, to, to Turkey uh, to basically become a Turkish client state uh, or a state that uh, uh, will not challenge Turkey in any way, or it will be part of basically new Russian empire where, you know, Turkey has to accept the fact that uh, Armenia is there and respect it because there is uh, Russia uh, behind, uh, behind Turkey. Otherwise, uh, you know, we can talk about uh, the trade and all that, uh, but uh, that is secondary when it comes to uh, both uh, politics in Turkey, uh, the reality of Turkey, and the reality of Armenia, the reality of Russia. Uh, the political preferences uh, dictate uh, these things. And uh, uh, in, in Georgia, you know, going back to Georgia, uh, of course, uh, you know, they, they have their own uh, number of issues. And uh, the fact that they have, they, they had a conflict with Russia, direct open warfare with Russia is a disaster, similar disaster to for Georgia as it was for Armenia to have a direct confrontation with Turkey. It, you know, uh, sort of inevitable disaster because it's two different weight categories. Georgia cannot fight Russia just like Armenia cannot fight Turkey, that's all. I'm going to give uh, the floor to the next uh, member of the audience. Please announce yourself and uh, go ahead. Hi, Nirana here. A uh, question to Arag. Would it be fair to say that your vision for Armenia is of that of Nikol Pashinyan's? If I, if, to make sure I understand, is, is my vision of Armenia that of Nikol Pashinyan? Correct. Opening borders, you know, peaceful economic growth through complete open yeah. borders. And, um, so, it, and correct me, yeah, just let me finish, please. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, you're talking about our neighbors and um, very casual way. Turkey, after 100 years until today, Turkey is realizing the last stages of genocide, still renaming cities, you know, regions to to erase every trace of Armenian or, you know, how do you imagine that being neighbors and if you could explain? Okay, so so let me answer the first question because it's the easier one. I, ha I have no idea what is Nikol Pashinyan's uh, vision. I think Nikol Pashinyan right now is a random number generator. I think, I, have, I don't know if he knows it's definitely not what he's communicating is not a vision it's just total randomness and he changes his views on things all the time even if you look at his past two years in the beginning he had fairly what looks like a constructive relationship with with uh, Alham Aliyev and then it was all total confrontation you know it's, it's it's really not clear I think we need to look at this problems as completely past Nicole's and past Serge's and Rob's and Levon's Okay, this is like we as a society need to understand what are what is in our best interest and what is it that will result in a disaster and complete loss of whatever is left of Armenia. Your second question uh, is about how can we uh, talk to, how can we be neighbors with Turkey that has committed the genocide and is denying it to this day? Answer is we are the neighbors. Okay, how can we be? We already are neighbors. Okay, we cannot escape that. Okay, we are stuck next to them. Okay, whether we like it or not. Uh, you know, I, I like. Um, I like uh, card games a lot because in card games, you find out that the one who wins in the long term is the one who is capable of choosing between bad and really bad. 
Okay, the long-term winner is the one who recognizes that he or she is in a bad situation, but realizes that the alternative is a total unmitigated disaster. And that person has the maturity to pick the bad and lose the short-term kind of game. But then, if you keep doing this in the long term, eventually you come out as a as, as a winner. Same thing here. Look, we have a really bad situation and possibly outright loss of our homeland. Which one do you want to pick? Okay, it's a it's the life is not fair, the world is not fair. Okay, but we have to make decisions, and the results of our decisions is what will determine whether our children will be able to live in Armenia or not. I will give the floor to uh, George next, but I think I've been a little bit too aggressive with moving people back to the audience. So what I'm going to do next is the person who asked the question, you know, I will keep them in the uh, speaker section, so they have a right to ask for a follow up. Uh, so you get to ask, I guess, two questions, interrelated questions, or a follow-up to your original question, and then, or if you don't, and then we can move you back. So sorry about that. <laughs> All right, um, George, go ahead. Hi guys, um, I have a question for Oreg. Um, so look, like I so, attract all the questions here. <laughs> yeah, you do. <laughs> so, what would you say would be a worst case scenario? or some worst case scenarios, some best case scenarios of the proposed action. Um, what do you think, what do you think will happen? Yeah. And then I'll, I have a second question as well. Yeah. Um, look, the, uh, I mean, I, I don't know. It's, it's a bit difficult to speculate about the future. Um, you know, and it's, it's not pleasant to voice extremely unpleasant kind of things, but like it's, you have to sort of look in the reality of the way it is. Okay. And, um, you know, my real worry is, I mean, Emil sort of gives this very stark kind of description of where we are in right now. And we have gotten into that situation primarily due to our bad decision over the years. We could have probably avoided a lot of these things, you know. Um, so in the future, you know, we could lose Sunik. We could lose Vartenis. We could lose all of Armenia. I mean, uh, I, I don't know if we, you know, if, if Turkey continues being as aggressive as it is, okay, then theoretically, and if Armenia really continues uh, sort of in a confrontational way with Turkey, the way it did, you know, essentially last couple of years, you know, the result will be something like that. But I mean, when I say confrontational, I'm not putting the blame on Armenians per se, but what, what is it? We have a situation and we have to understand, look, you cannot build a country. You cannot build a you know, a you cannot guarantee the survival of your state based on Tasib alone. Okay, we Armenians are very big on Tasib. Okay, and we are very much worried about being on Tasib at the end of the day. You cannot build a state, a survival state based on that. I'll give you a very specific example just to tell you what we have to thank our existence on. Okay, in 1918, after the Sardar Armenians were in terrible condition after Sardar even though in our books we tell that we crushed the Turks. That's not entirely true. We had a tactical victory against the Turks. The Vehib Bey, who was a leader of the Turkish contingency, and Halil Kud, okay, who was another general leading the Turkish forces, came to Yerevan. Halil Kud was famous for having killed 300,000 Armenians. He was openly boasting about it. They put a list of conditions on the Armenians. Armenians shook their hand, satisfied all those 10 conditions. Everything Turkey, Turks wanted, they gave to the Turks. Turks in their turn told them, okay, now that you are doing what we tell you, you know, we will let you leave. Okay. And they didn't, they allowed Yerevan to survive. They allowed Ararat Valley to survive. Okay. 
And uh, then they sort of went around the way. They went to Nakhichevan, to uh, to Yelizavet Pol, which is Ganja now, and then went and occupied uh, Baku, right? So you could. Uh, this is three years after the Armenian genocide. This is Armenia was filled with victims of the Armenian genocide. This is probably the most antasib thing, okay, honorless thing Armenians could do. And yet it was that decision that allowed the Armenian state to survive, to later become the Armenian Soviet Socialist Republic, to later become the Third Republic, okay? So if they had not done that and they have said, oh, you guys have massacred a million people, we're going to keep fighting with you, there would be no Armenia right now, okay? Now, hopefully, we don't have to be in such horrible conditions in the future. But this is simply gives you an example in the past where ultimately wise decisions, painful but wise decisions by Armenian leadership resulted in the survival of Armenia as it is right now. Arek, very good, very good point, Arek. But I have to intercede there for a second. Um, very good point about uh, you know importance of taking pragmatic decisions, and that was a pragmatic decision to to take in 1918. But you know, had uh, Turkey not lost uh, the uh, First World War just a few short months later, and had it not been for uh, you know English and uh, German and uh, French involvement in the region as well, uh, that that's what. Uh, prevented Armenian uh, state collapse. Uh, you know the the English occupation. Yeah, I agree that that too played a very so, big role. Yeah, that's, treated, that's, yeah. that that was uh, you know, and then of course the return of the Russians. Later. Right, right, agreed. Okay, can I have a closing uh, question here? Um, since I may be the last person asking, Emil, how would Nicole Pashinyan's way of dealing with the issues we've been discussing be different from those of Robert Kocharyan? And is it a differentiating is it a differentiating factor in these elections? I mean, after all, the elections are this weekend. So, for people voting, how should they? Uh, what should they know about the way that these people will be um, acting on Agreement Point Nine, basically? <laughs> Look, uh, um, I think I mentioned earlier that it's like two different worlds colliding with uh, Pashinyan and uh, Gocharyan. I mean, uh, you have uh, somebody who has uh, very little understanding of the world and uh, in, in Pashinyan uh, has a very you know, limited experience. Um, you know, uh, uh, huge complexes, it turns out, uh, and uh, basically basic inability to you know, manage resources that, uh, you know, that Armenia has, uh, which are not, uh, you know, uh, great, but uh, you know, they're, they're, they're Armenia had the, as of uh, September 2020, Armenia was the strongest state it ever was in in, in the past. You know, prior to that, it's uh, you know, in terms of uh, uh, capacity. Uh, Kocharyan, uh, the reason Armenia, you know, managed to uh, go on uh, for 25 years uh, as it did was a large degree to Kocharyan's activism, um, first as a, a chairman of the State Defense Committee of Artsakh, uh, you know, prevented the collapse and defeat in 1992. And this is what, uh, you know, Arek uh, was alluding to, that, you know, bad decisions were <laughs> made to, to continue the confrontation, not to lose, yeah, not to lose early. Had Armenia lost early, you know, obviously would have gone through all of this earlier and maybe, uh, you know, not worry about it today. But uh, um, he managed to stop the defeat at the time. Then he managed to, you know, guide the Armenian economy through a form of recovery in, uh, in the 2000s. And after all of that, uh, he left the presidency and uh, said goodbye without intention of coming back and then got dragged back into it, uh, you know. 
So um, it's it's sort of a, a really a black and white choice for me. Uh, maybe a bad uh, metaphor uh, for today, but uh, really a stark choice. I mean, uh, Armenia potentially has a future with Kocheren. It doesn't have a future with Pashinyan. That's that's all there is to it. Okay. Well, um, I think I'm going to close this evening. Thank you for everyone who has uh, been with us listening to our conversation. And um, good night. That concludes this week's conversation on Groong. We look forward to your feedback, including your suggestions for conversation topics in the future. Contact us on our website at groong.org. That's G-R-O-O-N-G. Or on our Facebook page, ANN-Groong. Or in our Facebook group, Groong-Armenian News Network. Special thanks to Lara Osborne for providing the music for our podcast. I'm Hovik Manicharyan, and on behalf of everyone in this episode, I wish you a good week. Thank you for listening and talk to you soon.